Bibles, if you would, please, and we open them to uh, Philippians chapter 4. And in our study of uh, Philippians tonight, we, we come to one of the most hopeful, comforting passages that we find in Scripture. There are many outstanding verses of Scripture, of course, uh, and things come to your mind when you think of things like the cross of Christ and when you think about salvation. Uh, thinking about salvation, everybody knows John 3.16, and you may think about Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. When we talk about the sovereignty of God, there are passages like Ephesians 1, 4 and Romans 8, 29 and 30 that come to our minds. And when we think about our security in Christ, there's 2 Timothy 1, verse 12 and 1 Peter 1, verse 5, Romans 8, 31 through 39 and Jude, verses 24 and 25, among many other scriptures. And those are things that are scriptures that we just kind of call to our mind. We memorize those because they represent great doctrines of the faith. And when we think about the practical side of Christian living and what it's really like and what we need to do living in a world that is so much against God, you come to Philippians chapter 4 and there are great verses of scripture here for the encouragement of Christians. And one place that I think that we can go to that really we can draw strength from is one of the strength from is one of the best places in the Bible is the verses we're talking about tonight, verses 6 and 7 in Philippians chapter 4. John MacArthur comments on this verse along with the entire fourth chapter in the vein of spiritual stability. And uh, the question is, what do you do in adverse circumstances? Martin Lloyd-Jones calls this the tyranny of circumstances. What do you do when things are just going uh, wrong and you're terrorized by circumstances. And that was a very real consideration for Christians in the first century and for these people in Philippi. And we notice here a very remarkable difference in the way that Paul presents the gospel to the people in the first century, to the people that he visited, spoke to, and talked about the gospel of Christ all throughout the Roman Empire. A very great difference in the way that he preached the gospel and the way that it's preached today. Now, the way that people present the gospel today is that if you trust Christ, then you needn't expect that anything's going to go wrong in your life. I mean, preachers today are not going to preach a gospel of persecution. They are not going to do what Paul said. Paul said that if you trust Christ, you put your faith in him, you can expect suffering. There, there's not a perchance happening here. This is going to happen to you. You are going to experience some very bad things as far as the world would think of it when you become a Christian. Tough times are going to come. But we notice that when people present the gospel today, there is no presentation of that side of Christianity. Now Paul's uh, letter here to the Philippians was born out of a prison cell. And so he could, all they need to do is look at his life to see what it was like. And they, they could see what he went through. And they knew that persecution was going to be a part of their lives too. But we don't hear that today when the gospel is preached. What we hear is that, that there's no, no sadness, there's no sickness, there's no problems that go along with becoming a Christian because preachers know that they can't fill up arenas, they can't fill up pews in a church if they tell people, when you trust Christ, you're going to be persecuted. And so they don't talk about that at all. Well, Paul was not afraid of driving people away with the gospel of Christ. He wasn't afraid that if he told them the truth, that they wouldn't come, that they wouldn't believe, that they, anything like that. 
And the reason that he didn't was because he trusted in the power of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit alone to lead people to salvation. So he wasn't worried about his presentation of the gospel. Well, what Paul then did was spend a lot of time encouraging those who did believe. Their faith faith would be tested, so they needed that spiritual stability. And so there are verses like the ones that we read tonight scattered throughout the writings of Paul and of the other apostles because we need some places to go when we have problems in our life, some place to draw some strength from. And really, over the next few weeks, that's the theme of these last verses in Philippians chapter 4. We're going to talk about many of the same things over and over and over again in maybe just a little bit different way each time that we discuss them. But let's stand and let's read these verses. Philippians chapter 4, it's already getting late, and uh, so I've got to hurry here. Verse number 6, Be careful for nothing. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which passeth all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we do indeed thank you for your mercy and for your grace, for your watch care, knowing that you are the great God who sees all, knows all, and cares for us. Help us, Lord, as we look into this passage to realize this and draw all of our strength and our confidence from you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. The title of my message tonight is Supplication to the Sovereign. And you might well expect, when you see the word supplication, that I will be talking about prayer. And that is indeed uh, the subject of the message tonight. But I'd like to talk to you about prayer in a little different way than the way that we usually talk about it. When we speak of prayer, lots of times we talk about the man of prayer. We talk about what we need to be and, and how that we need to approach God. We may talk about even a formula for prayer. We would go to Matthew chapter 6 and read uh, the model prayer that Jesus gave, and that was instructions about how to pray. But I don't want to focus so much tonight about the man of prayer. I want us to focus on the God of prayer. I want to talk about who God is when we pray. And that's why I've included sovereign in the title of the message tonight. So we're going to talk a little bit about what God is doing rather than what we do in prayer. I believe that the key to peace and contentment when circumstances are beating you down is to think about God who is sovereign over all. What may happen to us is a part of God's plan. Now, I mentioned a few weeks ago in, in talking about Romans eight twenty eight, the verse you well know, and we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. I talked to you about this verse and said, all things means all things. And in one sense of the word, we can say that in God's eyes, there is actually nothing bad that happens to us. Now, you, you might think, well, that's a very strange statement to make. But nothing bad happens to us in God's eyes because God is using everything that comes into our lives to get us exactly where he wants us to be. The things that God brings into our lives and happen to us are for his purpose. And this is something that Paul had to communicate to these Christians in Philippi. They would be, uh, they would suffer. Persecution would come. They would be accused. They would lose their jobs. They would be blamed for just about everything that goes wrong. You have to remember that 
in the time that they lived in the Roman Empire that people believed in something called the wrath of the gods. And they had all these different gods that they believed in. And when things weren't going right, it was always because the gods were angry. And so one of the uh, groups that they could lay all the blame on was Christians. They didn't believe in the gods. And so the Christians were teaching another doctrine. And so the Romans believed in the barbarians. And everybody in the Roman Empire believed that it's the Christians' fault. And so Christians would be persecuted. They wouldn't bow down to the emperor. He was considered to be a god. And so Paul rightly told them, you will suffer persecution. There's no doubt about it. So what could they do? Well, maybe it helps us to understand a little bit better why Paul expounded so clearly and so forcefully on the doctrine of the sovereignty of God. Now, in a world where people are preaching easy believism and they're preaching self-salvation and self-esteem and all of those things, the sovereignty of God has fallen out of favor. Many of our Baptist people don't hear about it anymore. And the reason, and because they don't, I should say, our churches are filled with puny and weak Christians who can't get along and won't get along because somebody's not always fulfilling a need that they have. Now, if these people were like the Philippians, where they were so destitute that they could do nothing other than to look to God then maybe the sovereignty of God would not be so out of favor with our churches today. It wouldn't be such an unpopular topic. So let's talk a little bit about this tonight, about supplication to the sovereign. Number one, I want to talk to you about the person of prayer. And when I say the person of prayer, I'm not talking about you or me. I'm speaking about the one that we pray to, the one who is the object of our prayers. When we pray, there is a triune God who is involved Every time that we kneel down. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are a part of every prayer. And the Trinity has to be considered when we pray. Now the scriptures are very clear about this. That the basis on which we can pray is a relationship with Christ. There must be a relationship with Christ. We don't have a natural relationship with God. Now there was a time when we did. Many, 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 many years ago, there, there, there was a time when man had a relationship with God, a natural one. And of course, that was when God created Adam. But Adam sinned against God. Adam before could freely speak with God. He could communicate with him as friend with friend. There were no inhibitions between him and God. Uh, God would just hear Adam when he spoke. But that changed when Adam sinned. God would not allow Adam to approach him in the same way. Now, Adam desperately tried to correct that situation. He made fig leaves to cover up his nakedness, but God wouldn't accept the fig leaves. So Adam couldn't do anything to make things right by his own efforts. Sin was too great and the crime was too heinous. And so instead, God did something himself. God slew animals and he put a covering on Adam and Eve. He covered up their nakedness. And so it was God himself who acted to right the wrong. And then Adam was able to come face to face with God. Those animals that were slain were the first indication that God must be appeased through a sacrifice. Propitiation must be made or God will not have fellowship with man. And the same is true today. It's been true throughout all human history. We come to God only on the basis of sacrifice. And the sacrifice is the one that God himself offers. Now perhaps... 
Nothing could speak clearer to that principle than we, when we think about Abraham and when he was told to offer up Isaac. I don't have time to go into the whole story, but if you want to read it, it's in Genesis chapter 22. And very briefly, God was going to test Abraham's faith, and so he told him to offer Isaac on the altar. And as they were going to the place of sacrifice, Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and he said, Now, now Father, we have, we have the wood and we have the fire, but where is the sacrifice? And Abraham said something prophetic that he didn't even really know was prophetic. He said, God will provide himself a lamb. God will give us a sacrifice. Now, of course, Abraham thought that that would be Isaac, and he went up that mountain fully expecting that if he sacrificed Isaac, that God would raise him from the dead. So Abraham raised his hand, and he was going to plunge the dagger into Isaac or slit his throat, whatever the method was going to be. And there was a message that came from heaven that told him to stop. Abraham's faith had been tested, and Abraham came through. And then Abraham looked up, And he saw a ram that was caught by its horns in a thicket. And God said, you take that ram and you make that the sacrifice. And that was a principle that's shown to us, that God was going to make a substitute for our sins. God provided his own sacrifice, and that sacrifice was his son. And that sacrifice is the only thing that allows man to come into the presence of a holy God. There is no right to approach God without it. There is no invitation for any person to speak to God without that sacrifice, without honoring the sacrifice and believing in it that God used that to reconcile man to himself. And so if there's anybody who dares to approach God believing that they can come without the sacrifice, God is not going to hear and really they have engaged in the ultimate blasphemy. God gave his own son. And we talked about this on Sunday night. He talked about, or he gave the thing that was most precious to him, even as Abraham was willing to offer his only son, the one that he loved. So God offered his son. And on the cross, Christ was bearing the guilt of all of our sin, the guilt of everyone who would believe in him. And so do you think that God would dare allow anyone to come into its presence who has sidestepped the sacrifice? The right and the privilege of coming into the presence of God is on the basis of the blood of Jesus Christ, what Christ has done. And when anybody comes to God trying to pray, going around that sacrifice, then what they actually do is trample under their feet the the blood of the Son of God. Now, friends, we're talking here about a holy and righteous God who is sorely offended by sin. It is so serious that he sent his Son to die for it. And so when unrepentant sinners tried to come to God and they attempt to speak to him without coming the way that God says to come, the way the sovereign says to come, then they find no favor with God. They blaspheme him. Now, I say this because there are many people who pray publicly and they pray generic prayers. Unless they offend somebody, they leave out the name of Jesus Christ. They're afraid that they're going to offend somebody who might hear, and so they don't speak the name of Jesus. Now, is that upside down or what? Because they come, and they're, not, they're afraid of offending man, but they care not at all whether they offend the holy God, the righteous God, who tells us how we must come to him. So that's completely upside down. I mean, who is greater, man or God? Who are we supposed to regard? Regard man or God? It's a very simple statement made in the Scripture. is very true that the less is blessed of the better. So we always honor God. So we can't come to God without the relationship, and the relationship is 
ours only through faith in Christ. Paul said, for ye are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. Now that's important, but here comes something that's also very important, and that is there must be recognition of God. That means knowing who God is and his character. Who is God? What has God done? Now, friends, I really do believe that there is much of evangelical Christian who is, that is serving a lesser God. Some have said that, there are, that you can't even put the word sovereign as a modifier of grace. You can't put those two things in the same sentence. And what they're doing is they're serving a God who is less than God really is. Well, who is God? Well, of course, to start off with, he's creator. He's the one who started it all. God is the one who's behind everything and, and keeps everything consistently and constantly working in the order that it should go. Now, what does an unbeliever then think about God? Let's start with him for just a moment. Well, an unbeliever thinks nothing at all about God. I mean, he, he thinks things just keep chugging along and doesn't really make any difference. I mean, there's nobody in control. Things just work. He doesn't give a second thought to the air that he breathes or... The fact that there's something that has to keep his heart beating and to keep his lungs working and keep his body functioning. He doesn't think about that. He doesn't think about who holds all the bodies that there are in space in their proper places. He doesn't think about who keeps the earth going around the sun in a perfect orbit. Who keeps it from getting too close to the sun or too far away, which would mean automatically no life on the planet. Who, who takes charge of all that? Well, who keeps things in order? Unregenerate people think that just happens. And if they do believe that there is a God, which of course many of them do, they don't really take consideration for the care that God has for us. Now that's bad enough. Bad enough to think about unregenerate people, unbelievers, and what they think that God is or who he is. But, but what about Christians? What about Christians who really aren't too far away from understanding or really understanding from the unbeliever, who God is. Let me tell you what I mean. Who is God to the believer? He's the one who chose you. But they don't want to hear that. They don't like not being in control. And so there's all the teaching we have today of man choosing God. We don't want to trample on anybody's free will. I must choose God, and if I don't choose God, then God has no say in this. So they say, yes, well, Christ came into the world to die for sins. He came and made salvation a possibility. But whether I'm saved is my choice and not God's choice. He just made it possible for me to be saved. They don't understand the sovereign God. I mean, who, who could ever think that God gave his son for the possibility that we could be saved? If, if God gave his Life for son, life for a possibility to be saved. There's a possibility nobody would be saved, and then Christ's sacrifice would have been totally in vain. So, is that the view that you have of a sovereign God? I mean, would you really think that God put His Son out there for blasphemy and and for the mocking and the cruelty that took uh, place and the suffering and the death on the off chance that you would be so gracious to God that you would believe in Him? So they don't understand God. And that's what you call a lesser God. Their God's weak. He's puny. He has his hands tied unless we are so gracious to make God happy by believing in him. So who is God? 
Well, he's the one who chose you from the foundation of the world. He purposed and he planned. He fulfills every purpose right down to the tiniest detail. And of course, that includes the salvation of man. That was for his glory. And so, are we so brazen to think that God has now left us in charge of his glory? And then who is God? Well, God is the one who redeemed you. He's the one who bought you. He's the one who picked you up. He's the one who made something out of you. And so do you think that God would turn everything loose and leave you in control and let you run things? It's a misunderstanding of who God is. And this leads us to fretting and worrying and being anxious about things. In order to trust God, you have to stop trusting yourself. You aren't big enough to control anything. Now, if you think about this for a moment, I mean, almost a year ago, I guess maybe it's a little over a year ago now, they discovered that the banks and the insurance companies were making all of these uh, bad loans and they were just raking in the money hand over fist, raking in the dollars, and it all caught up with them. And Somebody thousands of miles away made all of these decisions, and because of the decisions that they made, you have lost your job. Some of you, some of you have lost your houses. Maybe somebody here has done that. And there's all kinds of economic problems that are going on, and you had no control over any of it. So circumstances are out of your hands. So you see what Paul is saying here, that we have to pray to the one who controls all circumstances. There's not a thing that we can do about this stuff. We have to trust in the one who has the eternal purpose. None of it was about us. We, We have to remember that. It's all about him. And what we need to rejoice in, that God has made us a part of his plan and his purpose. Now, this is so different from people who really don't know who God is because they get depressed if you tell them, well, it really wasn't all about you. And they get all shook up about that because they just don't like the news that the world doesn't revolve around them. And so they feel worthless and they lose their self-esteem and they lose all of their focus. And when everything is not centered on them, then they're always going crazy because somebody's not sticking a smiley button all the time. It says, God loves you. They just don't know what to do with themselves. Friends, those who believe like we do in the sovereignty of God, have a completely different worldview. We rejoice because God is glorified. I'm not depressed because I'm not the center of attention. I mean, I see a sovereign God who who snatched me up and made me a part of the plan to glorify him. I didn't deserve anything but the worst fires of hell. But God chose me and redeemed me and then gave me the ability to glorify him. That is a whole different theology from, oh, God loves you, and God is really sweating it out, thinking that you might not believe in him. You might not choose him. Oh, pretty please, don't disappoint God by not believing in him. God is not capable of disappointment. Do you understand who the God you serve is? He is not capable of disappointment. God has planned and purposed it all. all. So let's stop trying uh, to make God like us, and let's concentrate more on being like him. Now, does God love us? Of course he does. He sent Christ to die for us. So, should we dishonor him and shame his love by thinking that God is too weak to accomplish everything exactly as he intended to do? 
Now, what does all that have to do with prayer? Well, you have to know who you're talking to. You see, it's demeaning to come into the presence of God without full confidence that God is in control of all things. It is demeaning to God for you to come into his presence with a complaint that things are not working out according to your plan. It's God's plan. And if you come disappointed in what's going on with your life and say, God, it's not fair to me, I don't know what you're doing to me, then you don't realize who God is. You haven't trusted him. Now, Paul says this in 1 Thessalonians 5.18, In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ concerning you. Now, sometimes we kind of twist that around and say, In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God. It's the will of God to give thanks. But think a little bit more about the verse. Give thanks, and he's talking also about all the things that happen in your life. Give thanks for them, because it's the will of God in Christ concerning you. Now, let's go on. I kind of got caught up in all that, so there's more to go here. Number two is the petition of prayer. Now, here we also have to consider the sovereign God. The manner in which we come says a whole lot about what we think about the sovereign. Paul says in verse 6, Be careful for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. Now, first of all, then, we come to God with trust. Be careful for nothing. That means don't be overly anxious. Don't, don't be worried about things. Worry is a function of distrust. Now, I don't have time to read it now, but if you go over to Matthew chapter 6, there Jesus talks in the Sermon on the Mount about how God takes care of all of his creation. He takes care of the birds and he takes care of the flowers. He takes care of the grass. All of his creation receives its nourishment. And Jesus says if God takes care of all of that, won't he take care of you? And the reason, or the, or the point that Jesus is making, is the reason that you worry is because you haven't learned to trust. Here's the thing. Man is the crowning point of God's creation. God created man and gave him dominion over the creation. And so what Jesus is telling us, if God takes care of the creature, isn't he going to take care of the one he put over the creature? Doesn't that make sense? Of course God's going to take care of you. That's what the song was that we sang. God will take care of you. So Jesus says, don't worry about it. Just trust God. He's the consistent provider. He created us to bring glory to him. Now maybe the world doesn't get that, but you should. He sends the rain on the just and the unjust. God is providential overall. And in just a moment, I'm going to show you why a Christian, above all, should understand not to worry. So come to God with trust. He's the sovereign God. You can trust him. Then you come with thanksgiving. Now, I want you to notice two words that Paul used uh, preceding thanksgiving. He says prayer and supplication. Now, let me explain to you the difference between the two. Prayer, when it's used in a general sense, means a reverent address to God. It means to come to God in worship and devotion. And maybe sometimes we don't really get that because we can approach God in a very flippant way sometimes. But when we come to the presence of God, we come reverently because God is the sovereign. We come into his presence and we respect who God is. We respect his kingship and his lordship. 
We respect that he is the eternal God. He's the creator. He is the one who chose us. He is the one who redeemed us. And so we come in adoration and worship of him. That's what prayer is. The other word is supplication. And supplication means a humble cry of relief. And when you put those two things together, you come up with thanksgiving because you understand that in the will of God, God always does what is best. And so you remember how that God has blessed you in the past. You see how God takes care of you in the present. And what you do is you supplicate God that he will continue those blessings into the future. And so we give thanks to God because it's the will of God. And we're not to bring, or God is not going to bring something into our lives that is not for our good. And so if you go to God again in a bad mood, thinking, well, why did you do this to me? This is not fair. It's an upside-down attitude. God allowed it, and God did something because in the end it would glorify him. And so the attitude of realizing it's for God's glory is most important because you will not come in with, to him with complaint if you understand that. You come with thanksgiving no matter what condition you're in. Third thing is that you come with trouble. Now, you may be thinking... That what I've done so far is shoot down the idea that we ought to make requests. God has a plan. Everything works according to his plan. That's what the pastor says. So what difference does it make if I pray? What difference does it make? God has everything in his hands. Why do I need to pray? It's not going to change anything anyway. But isn't that a part of this? Because he says, let your requests be made known unto God. Now I'm going to shorten this up a little bit. Because the next part really brings out what that means. Number three is the peace of prayer. Verse number seven. And the peace of God which passeth all understanding shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. So we are making a request for peace. Now did you notice here that Paul does not say make your request known and God will answer your request. He doesn't say at all what God's going to do about the request. He said make the request, but he didn't say anything at all. Well, you can expect that God's going to give you just what you want. And he didn't say God's not going to give you what you want. He didn't even address that. You know why? Because it's unimportant to the point. The real point is you will have God's peace. Whatever it is, whatever the outcome, whatever happens, you're going to receive God's peace. Now, do you think that God always delivered them from their trials? What was Paul praying? Do you think he was praying, Lord, please send me to prison? No, I think he was praying, Lord, deliver me from the prison. But the Lord didn't see fit to do that. That request wasn't granted. But what happened to him? He prayed and he got peace. He got the peace that he needed to go through the prison. And so whenever anything happens to you, you're going to get the peace that you need to go through whatever it is. Now, the sovereign God, folks, has not deserted you. He's going to give you the peace to endure. He gives it to you, and you'll do it graciously and without fear. When you know who God is. David's a very good case in point for us. I want you to turn now to Psalm chapter 3. And I want you to look at something here about the peace that David had. And I want, to, I want to tell you something while you're turning there, that often we quote the songs wrongly, and, and I'm guilty of it sometimes. 
Because when you read the Psalms, the title of the Psalm is also a part of the sacred text. And sometimes we just leave that out and we start with verse number 1 and we don't read the title. Well, here the title's important, for sure. Psalm chapter 3, verse number 1. A Psalm of David, when he fled from Absalom, his son. Lord, how are they increased that trouble me? Many are they that rise up against me. Many there be which say of my soul, there is no help for him in God. Selah. And that word simply means, think about that. Just think about that. But thou, O Lord, art a shield for me, my glory and the lifter up of mine head. And I cried unto the Lord with my voice, and he heard me out of his holy hill, Selah. I laid me down and slept. I waked, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people that have set themselves against me round about. Now this is when Absalom tried to take the kingdom away from David. David is speaking to the Lord, and so what do we have here? It's a prayer. He's praying. Look at verse number 4. I cried unto the Lord with my voice, and he heard me out of his holy hill. David cries out because Absalom had turned against him and was pursuing him. Now go down to verse 6. I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people that have set themselves against me round about. Now let's get the picture here. How upset would you be if this happened to you? What if there were 10,000 people standing at your door, surrounding your house, and ready to knock down the door and come and get you? Would you be worried about that? Would you be anxious about that, knowing there's 10,000 people out there? Well, I want you to know what happened to David, or what David did. He cried out to God, and then something happened between verse number 4 and verse number 6. Look at verse number 5. I laid me down and slept. I waked, for the Lord sustained me. Could you lie down? Of course you can. (laughs) You can lie down. That's, That's no big thing. The bigger question is, can you sleep? Now, David could sleep. I mean, he wasn't sure of the outcome. Uh, he, he, he could lie down and sleep because he had peace that everything was in God's hands. This is what Paul is saying. He doesn't, he doesn't talk about the outcome. The outcome's unimportant. He doesn't say, pray, and then you'll get exactly what you want. He promised you something much better. He says, the peace of God, which passes all understanding shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Now, do you see the word keep in that verse? It's the very same word that Peter uses in 1 Peter 1, verse number 5. Peter said, who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. That word kept there means to have a guard placed over you. It means to have a sentinel placed at your door and you're safely kept. That's David's feeling. I mean, he could lie down and sleep because he had a guard at the door. God was there for him. God's peace was at the door. And it's the very same power that keeps us saved. Now, let me ask two questions, then we'll be through. Two questions. Number one, letter A. What is there that God can't handle? We're talking about a sovereign God. What is there that God can't handle? Is there a single thing that's more powerful than God? For your understanding, you need to know, and you do know, I think, Romans eight thirty-eight and 39. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature 
shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Can you lie down and sleep if you know Romans 8, 38 and 39? How many sleepless nights have you spent thinking about your bank account? How many sleepless nights have you spent thinking about your house and thinking about your job that you might lose or don't have? How anxious are you about those things and you're upset and you don't know what to do about it? The question is, what is there that a sovereign God can't handle? Question number two, letter B, is what is there that God will withhold? What needful thing is God going to keep back from you? Now, the problem here is the word needful. And needful to us, and I'm going to preach on, I'll get into this in another sermon a little bit later on. Needful for us is wantful, actually. There's things that we want that we're confused about and we think that we need. But the question is, what needful thing will God withhold from you? Now listen to this verse, Romans eight thirty-two: He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him freely also give us all things? God gave Christ. He gave his very best. There's nothing that comes close to Christ. So what is God going to withhold for your peace, your safety, your comfort that you really need? Nothing. So yes, what do you do? Bring your request to God. Bring the trouble because you know what he does? He trades out trouble for peace. Now, you can bring him all the troubles. It doesn't make any difference how many there are. It doesn't make any difference how big, how small. Bring him all the trouble. Nothing is too big for God to handle. So you ask me then, well, how many circumstances then will God take away? And I'll tell you, I don't have any idea. I don't know the answer to that question. But if you ask me how many troubles will he take away, he'll take away them all. And he'll give you peace. So the sovereign God will keep your heart in peace. He places the sentinels around you. You just have to realize who God is. Get that in your mind first, who God is. And then you have peace. Now, remember the last statement. It's not actually on your listening sheet, but but my last statement is sleep easy tonight because God has got your back. Sleep easy tonight. God has got your back. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the time we've spent together tonight and we just come before you and we need to realize who you are, what an awesome God you are, what you can do. And, and we need not fear, we need not be anxious. Everything is going to work out according to your plan. And at the same time, we need not be flippant about that. But we know, Lord, there's a purpose for what you do and you, you have enabled us to have a part of your plan. And Lord, in all that we do, may we glorify you May we respect who you are, and we know that you'll give us peace. Bless in this time of invitation, in Jesus' name, amen.